Welcome to the Thriving Musician Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with musician, speaker, and consultant Spencer List to hear stories of how professional musicians navigated the inevitable financial challenges that arise on the path to creative freedom and get insight from industry professionals on how to break through to the next level of your finances, career, and art. Now, here's your host, Spencer List. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Thriving Musician Podcast. Before we get started, you need to know that the content on this podcast is for informational purposes only. So anything that we talk about should not be construed as personalized investment advice, and is subject to change without notice. Also, this podcast will not help you become a better musician. That's all up to you. So with that said, let's get started. Today, I have a very special guest in Toshi Clinch. He's an Australian arranger, performer, and educator currently located in Melbourne, Australia. And he's performed globally all across the world including with artists such as Glenn Miller Orchestra, Tommy Dorsey Big Band, Dick Oates, Danilo Perez, James Morrison, and many more. And he graduated with a degree in jazz arranging from University of North Texas. And he studied with Rich DeRosa, which he will be on a future episode coming soon, and bassist Lynn Seaton. And he has his own big band album. And I think you have more than one album. We'll talk about that. and which is really cool. And he's performed alongside some other artists like Vincent Gardner, Ed Sof, Pat Coyle, and he c- currently arranges for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. So he also started a really cool big band festival in Australia called Big Band Through the Ages Jazz Festival. And we're going to talk about that and what that really looks like. And he's bringing in well-known names in the jazz community to his festival and he's running it all himself and it's really cool to hear we're going to get deeper into that later but i'm really looking forward to speaking with toshi about the business side of music what what your finances look like as a freelancer and arranger and you know what it really looks like to have experience living in america and australia and all those differences there and so welcome to the podcast, Toshi. Hey, Spencer. Thanks so much for having me here. Uh, it's a real honor. Definitely. And so for listeners, it is around 9 a.m. my time, and I think it's around midnight Toshi's time. So we've done one Australian interview in the past, and we, I think we did something similar. Um, so thanks for taking the time. And it's funny, as, as the guests become more international, I'm sure I'm going to have to figure out some interesting times to interview. Yeah, um, yeah. So for listeners who don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit more background of who you are musically and you know financially and what's led you to this point? Yeah, so uh, I would call myself primarily a, a composer and arranger. Now, you know, with studying jazz arranging, maybe I should say jazz arranger, but um, you know, I think I, I do more work for pop artists and those sort of people nowadays that are maybe just a ranger <laughs> suits mm-hmm. it better. Yeah. Um, but so my day-to-day sort of, maybe I should say my week-to-week sort of jobs uh, aren't just one thing. So I'd probably write charts, maybe what you would call like a nine-to-five. 
Um, but as a musician, I still perform maybe three, four times a week. Uh, and then I've just recently stopped uh, most of my private teaching. Uh, I used to teach three days a week uh, to make up most of my income, but now I'm only teaching half a day. Um, and that's really just to make up for more, make more time in my schedule for other things. Um, but do all of those things. And then, like you said, uh, I find myself probably more into producing and production and managing uh, artists a bit more now than ever before. And I think that's just probably going to increase over, you know, the next coming years. Um, but yeah, so uh, my background was as a bass player, a uh, jazz bassist. And I did that throughout high school. And then uh, I come from a background where uh, my parents aren't musical. Now, I grew up in the Salvation Army, which in Australia is a full church, whereas in America, it's seen more as a, like a charity organization. Hmm. Um, but the Salvation Army uh, is very deeply associated with brass band culture, kind of British brass band. And so getting into music, I came in uh, as a trumpet player or a cornet player. Uh, and that kind of got me in there. And even though uh, my mom and dad weren't musical uh, or aren't that musical, uh, they kind of saw the importance of the church culture having me play a brass instrument. So uh, I was still surrounded by musicians as much as it wasn't in the home, so to speak. Uh, but that soon changed to double bass. And I played tuba for quite a few years as well. Um, but then through high school, even though I was doing music quite a lot and by, you know, year, you know, grade 11, grade 12, um, I, I was still doing a lot of academics. So out of uh, high school, I went straight into a mechanical engineering degree uh, where I did it for about a semester. And I was studying at a, a college here called uh, RMIT or the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. And then... Uh, uh, did that for a semester, but I was still gigging a lot, and uh, it just kind of came down to the point where I was like, oh, I'm not going to continue that. And my dad didn't care as much. He had studied uh, in the States and done his PhD in accounting over there, so he was, you know, all for me to go on and study wherever I wanted. He didn't really care. Um, but my mum <laughs> uh, was the typical mother saying, don't do music, you can't make money you know, all the drugs and whatever is associated with that sort of picture of a professional musician. Um, and then, so I decided to take a leave of absence uh, for a year from the, uh, from the college, but I was still enrolled. So that if I ever wanted to come back in that year, I could maintain my engineering studies. Um, but then uh, what I had to do was convince my mom that <laughs> music was the right choice. So I, I told her, uh, contact all the professionals in, in the scene and get kind of, you know, letters of recommendation, which, you know, it felt more like a job application than, a, you know, <laughs> uh, a career, something to go as a career pursuit. But uh, did that, and I think three or four months, because I decided kind of halfway through that first semester. So I was still studying engineering um, while doing this, but. She uh, agreed eventually uh, and I was playing enough with enough people here and it wasn't just, you know, high school friends. It was professional corporate sort of jazz gigs. Uh, and then I decided that if I wanted to study, 
uh, jazz than I was going to study in America. Um, just because, you know, jazz is an American art form. May as well go to the, go to the source. Right. Um, and then, you know, uh, as an Australian, uh, you know, we have a thing here which allows us to study within Australia and the government kind of subsidizes all of the fees. And so the fees are a lot less than your American sort of normal college, even though we'll get into North Texas being a lot cheaper than say like a Berkeley model. Um, but, uh, there's a thing and it's an acronym for something It's called HEX. So it's like higher education, something, something, uh, and pretty much they pay off your debt, but then it goes into your, like the, you have an account and then, uh, as you, once you get a certain amount of money per year, salary bracket then a percentage of that income gets paid towards the government Interesting. Uh, that. so technically if you never make over that money uh like that bracket in a year you'd never have to pay off your hex debt huh. um so it means that most people can go straight into you know higher education study out of high school uh without having to worry about money but when you go internationally you don't get access to that mm. uh, and so going internationally for me may, meant I had to then raise enough money to do that. And even though, you know, my dad comes from, he comes from a background where there's not much money, but he has through his lifetime earned quite a bit and uh, could easily support me. It was still not the sort of thing where uh, I had to, you know, rely upon him. They kind of both made it clear that I need to find the money myself. And for a four-year degree, that adds up quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, through the process of applying for university over there, I decided on North Texas, a few different reasons, uh, you know, financially being one of the three core reasons. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm not sure if people listening to this might be aware, but if you get a $1,000 scholarship, then it drops out-of-state tuition into in-state tuition rates which is really like a $10,000 bonus scholarship. Right. Um, which, you know, for me, <laughs> that's a, a lot of money per yeah. semester. Yeah. Uh, so um, that was one of the main reasons uh, among, you know, great faculty and then also, uh, you know, a great big band program. And I was very much a big band player. Um, but yeah, so, uh, worked really hard for that year and I'm sure I'll go into that a bit later. Uh, earned quite a lot more money than I probably even still make, uh, per year just because I had to raise, you know, close to a hundred thousand dollars or something <laughs> to pay off the, the university. Um, and then got accepted in the program, studied, uh, did my degree in three years instead of in four years. Uh, through taking extra classes and that sort of thing, which ended up saving me money mm-hmm. as well. Uh, did an album, uh, which you were saying that I have, I have done a secondary album. I don't really add it because of, there's a bit of a backstory there. Uh, uh, and it was a great learning experience, but I don't kind of, it's not really my thing. And it is kind of a collaborative album. So it's probably more the vision of the other artist. Mm. Um, but still a kind of a necessary key to where I am now. Mm. And then uh, went on the cruise ships. Uh, and then I actually was meant to be in America at this current time, but 
what happened was I got offered a full-time job, came back to Australia to get my new visa to work in America. And then the company kind of went cold turkey and uh, oh. all, all my stuff was in Texas and I was here with no money. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so I'm still here and I, I plan to move back next year. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, funnily, as that's happened, uh, you know, a lot of great things have happened because of that too. Right. Um, so that kind of lands me where I am. And throughout the process, I kind of transitioned from bass playing to writing primarily. And uh, I think, you know, financially that has helped me more. I think there's definitely more money in writing and it's more comfortable in terms of you can stay home instead of having to go to gigs, <laughs> you know. Right. That's an extra maybe two hours or three hours of commute time that you can get paid for on on the laptop. Uh, But yeah, so that's kind of the background of me as a a musician. Uh, And now I do that all freelance uh, as most professional musicians do. Uh, And as each year goes on, you add more contacts to the list. You have more work coming from different areas Uh, and definitely still do more writing. Most of my playing comes from gigs I want to do and ones that I put on instead of having to rely on other people contacting me Mm -hmm. or managements uh, and that sort of thing. And then financially, uh, you know, uh, I would say, you know, uh, high school, obviously still relying on parents and coming out of high school when I started working, that's kind of when I first started getting proper income. Like I'd always been making a decent amount for performing in like my senior year and then straight afterwards, uh, whether it be accompanying people or, you know, doing a corporate function or whatever. Uh, but then that year afterwards, I was like, oh, I'm making better money than my mom, <laughs> you know, uh, and probably better money than most people <laughs> uh, just because I, I was fortunate to run into a couple of great opportunities. And then uh, when I was at uh, university, I decided not to work. Uh, or that wasn't my primary focus. You know, I'd worked so hard for the time leading up to it. I just really wanted to make the most out of studying. Uh, And, you know, being on a student visa doesn't make work any easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there wasn't really any point. You know, I could work on campus and that wouldn't be too difficult, but making like $7 an hour is pretty silly against, you know, 50 plus. Uh, You know, I may as well just get better at what I'm doing and yeah. that will pay off in the future, uh, which it has. And then uh, kind of what I've, what I started doing and then probably in high school, I think I was just thinking about this before uh, is kind of this project orientated mindset where uh, whether it be a small recording session or, you know, uh, now the festival side of things, it's kind of every year I've had a different project that would be maybe a bit more major compared to, you know, putting on a gig or something like that. And then every year it's kind of snowballed a little bit. And so maybe the first couple of things, you know, straight out of high school, I put in, started a band as everyone does. And then, uh, uh, you know, that was my first opportunity dealing with, you know, responsibility of other musicians, you know, uh, what does managing look like? What does booking gigs, paying people, et cetera. Uh, and then that kind of snowballed more into, you know, okay, what happens if we want to do a recording session or an album with that, or, you know, 
and kind of kept going. And then the scope of these projects would get bigger. A lot of it was very similar each year. It would just be a bigger project. Oh, let's incorporate more people. Let's have, you know, if we're primarily a horn-based band, let's add strings. People I'm not used to working with. Or, and then, uh, you know, that kind of turned into that. My first proper album, uh, which was called Response, was with a band I was running at UNT at the time uh, called UFO. And we primarily just did, you know, Tower Power covers, you know, just music that we all liked, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Not really original music, um, but we had lots of fun doing that. And then the idea was this was going to be the first project where like kind of every semester we kind of collaborated with a new artist to kind of challenge the band a bit, you know, something a bit different than what we usually did. And so we did that with that artist. Uh, it was meant to be kind of like a hip hop sort of vein thing and turned into something that was very disliked amongst the band. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and that was the first time we really talked about fundraising. And I think mm. that was probably like a $15,000 album or something. Uh, and most of that uh, was my first time looking at that side of thing, raising funds for a product, not mm -hmm. just for work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that kind of snowballed again. Did my big band album, which probably was like a $25,000 project or something, uh, you know. And that one went a lot more smoothly because of things I learned in the whole process with the first experience. Right. Um, and then, you know, after that, I came back here. And I didn't know how long I was going to be here for. And then, uh, you know, it kind of turned into this festival. Like I, I thought of, I could do another album, but, you know, albums now, it's like, oh, okay, you just need X amount of money for whatever certain level you want. You know, if it's super in-depth, then it's going to cost more that didn't really pose a challenge. And I'm always kind of someone that likes a challenge more than uh, anything else. People ask me, why do I do it? And most of the time it's like, well, I wanted to see if I can, Yeah, you know? And uh, so then that turned to that festival. And I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, in greater detail, but now it's kind of transitioned where the festival this year turned into a youth program that went the whole year. Uh, and so, kind of filling a hole that wasn't Melbourne already and then transitioning into an even bigger organization next year. But that's kind of what we're dealing with now because you can't just start it in January and hope it works, you know? Right. Uh, but that's kind of where, where it is financially, like in terms of that sort of stuff, like I've always been working, you know, writing, trying to get the most out of my spots. Like the reason I write for a lot of Royal Caribbean people is I did the time on the ships and I just used that time to make connections. And, you know, the idea is that if you do something well, that hopefully they pass your name on, you know, mm -hmm. and then most of the industry is still, you know, uh, word of mouth uh, more than anything else. So, uh, Certainly. And, you know, that'd probably be my normal income. And then these bigger things is kind of a more business approach. Mm -hmm. you know, wow. So. so you've had an interesting time thus far. And so I have a lot of questions. Great. The first one, let's go back. I want you kind of mentioned your parents and how they felt about music and money a little bit. I'm curious, did they talk about money at the dinner table or did you grow up talking about money? Did they teach you anything? Because it sounds like you you have a lot of drive in you and a lot of your financial growth has come out of necessity. 
in terms of following your goals. And so I'm curious how your parents or even neighbors it's or whoever you were surrounded by growing up, uh, how you were influenced financially. Sure. Uh, well, I don't think it was ever something we talked around the dinner table about. Uh, I probably It's probably more through uh, seeing how they acted than mm-hmm. talking about. It's definitely something I talk about more with them now. Uh, as I'm becoming more of an adult, getting more responsibility. It's mm-hmm. their conversations that I have instead of, you know, what's for dinner. But uh, uh, growing up, you know, I, I'm the youngest of two, uh, but then my parents remarried when I was very young. So there's three other siblings as well. Okay. Uh, so I'm kind of the youngest of five uh, by a considerable portion. Like my sister is 10 years older than me, and she's my, uh, you know, blood relative. But then even my stepbrothers, you know, they're, you know, six, seven years older than 10 and then 13, 14 years older. And so it's, you know, I always kind of got to see everyone else go through everything mm-hmm. before I had to deal with everything. Interesting. Uh, but, you know, how my mom works, my mom's probably where I get the creative side of things from, even though she's not musical. She's definitely, you know, she likes visual art. She's a great painter and sketcher, and, you know, uh, that sort of thing, but she also does a lot of project management, and she was, uh, you know, doing lots of volunteering because we, again, we grew up through the Salvation Army, mm-hmm. so she heavily volunteered there. And then, you know, I grew up in Sydney uh, and then moved to Melbourne. And in Sydney, in the area that I grew up in, it was very uh, bushfire prone. So every couple of years there'd be big bushfires, and she would always, you know, be part of the Salvation Army relief team. And, organize everything to do with that so i wouldn't see the money side of thing from that uh, but i definitely saw uh the management side and how to kind of make i don't think i ever was doing this uh you know on purpose but i reckon it probably seeped in a bit of like oh this is how you kind of get things done and my dad's the complete opposite but you know he did <laughs> he's a professor of accounting so uh, you know <laughs> as much as i probably never really paid attention to him talking about money or anything. Uh, it is kind of what he taught. So, uh, <laughs> you know. uh, yeah, like I, I didn't really deal with learning anything about money from them. I feel, uh, like, you know, the same, like they'd always be like, you need to save money to buy your new Lego or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? And then they'd be like, here's a bunch of chores you can do, wash the cars and clean whatever, you know, and you get 50 cents and, you know, like they'd put like you know I, I like I never grew up knowing how wealthy my parents were or weren't uh, you know they always lived very humbly mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what they may or may not have had uh, and you know we'd go to a shop called Big W which is like a Walmart equivalent and um, you know the sort of things like they'd make me put something on lay by for six months and every week or something I'd put my chore money to it or something wow that's how i would pay it off instead of them just buying 60 whatever. right uh, and so that's kind of how i grew up with that and you know as much as i don't think of it it probably has impacted a lot of how i operate now Definitely. Um, is doing that sort of thing and then when i was in high school i took accounting just because i had a spare class that i needed to fill not because i had any interest in it and, you know, my dad never said anything. He kind of laughed when I told him I was doing it because he was like, why are you doing 
you know. Uh, and that kind of taught me a bit more about, you know, the invoicing side of stuff. So yeah. before I even got out of school and had to invoice, because how things operate here is pretty similar for a musician uh, in America, but you run your own private business uh, and you have a business number associated with that. And to invoice people, you need to state that business number and all that sort of thing. And when you do your taxes, it is all related back to that number. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's kind of like you're a sole tradership um, as opposed to through working in, you know, at McDonald's or something where you get paid for the entity. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so that kind of accounting kind of taught me more about how, you know, I, they weren't saying this is what you do as a musician. It was kind of like, let's look at all these examples with small businesses. Mm-hmm. This person's invoice, this person, you need to make sure these things balance or whatever, you know. So I kind of saw that, you know, the year or two before I kind of got out and was dealing with that as a private musician. And kind of now what I see is with a lot of the youth guys that I work with that I'll put on a gig to get them more exposure and that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I kind of take for granted a lot of that info that I already knew because they'll send me something about how do I get paid? I'm like, Oh, you need to do blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then you'll finally get your money. You know, right, like, right. I, I'm not going to give you this money before I can claim it as an expense on my business. Right. You know, yeah. Which most people don't understand until someone's told them or they research it. Right. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I grew up. And, you know, again, my sister was 10 years older than me. Uh, and she's probably the sibling I'm close with because, you know, she's my proper blood sibling. And, mm. you know, I have probably, you know, 12, 13 years more close relationship with her uh, mm. before my stepbrothers. So, uh, you know, she's someone that worked really hard. Uh, to get where she is and I you know as much as I again when you're 10 or whatever you don't really pay attention to this but you know because we moved to Melbourne uh, she had to live by herself or with roommates and go through all that and had to pay rent and all those sort of things while still studying uh, you know and you know she's someone that did it really well and then has obviously now got into a position where you know she's higher up in the corporate structure uh, and achieve a lot of the things which you you would normally see in a, you know, that sort of business position, maybe not a musician position because uh, we're a bit different than, the, you know, the corporate ladder. But, uh, you know, if you look at the 10 year sort of model or whatever, a more corporate business job then you know, she's definitely something that achieved that while also going through these more financial hurdles. Um, so seeing people like that and then, you know, the, you know, the management of my mom, and the business side of school and whatnot, uh, it can't, I guess it kind of all kind of merged together. A yeah, bit. definitely. It sounds like when you gave your story and then you just told me all the things you witnessed growing up, it makes complete sense. And that's really yeah. cool that you had all those experiences and witnessed these things and then it eventually kind of manifested into your own life. Yeah. And I would say like the big thing is I don't think anyone ever said nothing was impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if I wanted something, I could easily get it. Well, you know, I, it was never seen as like it was difficult. It was always something like there's a process. Mm-hmm. You know, if I wanted that really expensive Lego, the process was I had to do the work, right. you know, whatnot. So, you know, like getting into UNT and that sort of stuff, I never really felt, like as much as it's difficult, 
all of this, the entry requirements, you know, yeah, it's just time when it comes down to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to get into these things, you just have to spend the appropriate amount of time. Everyone's different, you know, the engagement of time. Um, definitely. But, and that's definitely how I think of things now, you know, uh, like, you know, I'm not used to dealing with high volumes of money, uh, but you know, the, proposed budget i think the next year is like three hundred fifty thousand dollars or something and like you know i don't earn six figures uh you know even though i might organize a project uh-huh. that deals with that much but it's like well it's all relative you know if you have a million people and you get a dollar from all of them that's a million dollars you know yeah <laughs> you know a lot of people think oh a million dollars is a lot of money but if you put it in that context it's just a dollar to a million people Yeah, definitely. I like to say the difference between a hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars is one zero. Right. Just just add a zero. It's all relative. Yeah. So one hundred percent. Can you talk a little bit more about you mentioned, you know, you spent like a year working towards raising funds to come to America to go to school at North Texas. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looked like? Um, you know, was it stressful? I mean, you you kind of <laughs> were prepared mentally to like work towards that goal. And it sounds like you knew what you needed to do. You're willing to put in the time. But what is what did that really look like for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think a big thing as musicians is that people, uh, yeah, this was kind of before I dealt with kind of the saturation point of musicians where they think that they have to only do music mm-hmm. to make money. Uh, you know, at this point, I didn't care uh, about where the money was coming from. It just needed to come. You know, I knew what the end amount I needed was, or at least how much out of that I needed to have. Uh, and so pretty much when I was doing engineering uh, and had finally convinced my mom, I guess there was like two or three weeks left of the semester. And mm-hmm. I was like, we'll brainstorm, like, where am I going to get money? And the biggest thing is, you know, you, you know, if you're going to spend hours doing it, you want to be getting paid the most per hour that you can. And like I was getting gigs and that sort of stuff, but not nearly as much as what would need to make up that. And most gigs still at that time, you know, if you break it down, if you do a three hour gig or whatever, or you do a two hour gig or something, it's 150 or something. And then you have two hours of commute or whatever. It's like the hourly rate overall is still not that good. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, you probably want a job that pays more than that. Um, and so talking to my stepdad at the time was working in the airport as a chaplain, again, through the Salvation Army. Uh, and he was like, well, why don't I talk with all the managers of all the different people? So the airport is not just like one corporate structure. It's many different businesses there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he kind of talked around and then, uh, you know, there was kind of two options that seemed to pay a lot and didn't need any requirements, uh, which was pretty much exactly where I was, you know. Uh, and they were baggage handler and security guard, like TSA sort of thing. Uh, and kind of we followed both pursuits and security guard seemed way better in my mind than baggage handler. And I think most people would agree with that. Uh, but so I had a meeting with the, like, one of the managers or something in uh, pretty much how it works in this in Australia is that it's not like a corporate government body like TSA would be. It's a private sector company mm. that has a, a 
you know, a certain contract with each airport mm-hmm. and win that contract, you know, they compete against maybe three or four other big businesses mm-hmm. for that contract. And so the contract, and it still is with them now, it's a company called ISS, which is an international company, and they're usually known for security and cleaning. I think they're Irish or something uh, to start with, but they're an international company that deals with security and cleaning primarily. And they had the contract. So I, I met with one of the higher up managers at the airport and he said, look, all you need is this security license and we'll give you a job. It was not like, here's the job application form or whatever. He just said, you just need this license and we'll give you a job just because he knew my stepdad. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I was like, okay, well, I need to work out where to get get this license or what the process is for that. Fortunately, he just kind of said, look, there's this one. What we have here in Australia is these kind of community colleges, but we call them TAFEs. Um, and you can get, you know, it's kind of the diplomas. And we have another thing called certificates. So sometimes, like, if you want to be hairdresser, you don't need a diploma, but you might need a cert for in hairdressing, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that might be a five, six week course or longer or shorter. Anyway, I needed to get two of these certificates uh, and it's like five weeks course. Anyway, he, you know, he said, look, you can make 45 an hour, you know, uh, pretty much work as much as you want. Like, I'll be considered casual, but 80% of the workforce is casual. Uh, and all that means is that, you know, you just don't have a set, you know, 40 hours a week. Uh, you'll still have 40 hours or as much as you want, uh, but it won't be the same shifts week to week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I don't care. Just give me as many hours as you want. And so uh, uh, did the five weeks, uh, uh, the five-week course, got the certificates. Yeah, it was so boring. Like mm-hmm. coming out of high school and doing engineering, you know, I'm used to very uh, high, high pace, you know, very – difficult questions and that sort of thing right i was in this thing for five weeks and it was like a nine to five and you sit there and it's really easy answers so you know that sort of stuff's annoying because you're kind of like i'm here for five weeks right and you know and it like cost like three grand or something but it was the sort of thing was like my mom paid for it and i paid her back uh when i made it from the jump mm. and i worked out i was like look i can make this every fortnight uh, like bi-weekly here we call it fortnight two weeks but uh um so i was like well you know in two weeks i can make the same amount that i paid for this five-week course no brainer of course i'm going to do this um and so then did it got my security license had to deal with that process with any license as you can imagine you know there's a process behind it because you know this is a government license that's you know higher ranking than you know your driver's license or something so there's a bit more paperwork did that, emailed the guy, the manager, and said, look, I have this, you know, and he said, come in for a formal interview, you know, which was really <laughs> like, hey, man, thank you for doing this. And the guy was like, why do you want to do it? And I came up with some cool crap answer, like, you know, I'm really interested in whatever. And he's like, man, we all know that you're here just to make money like everyone else who's doing this. <laughs> and so as soon as he said that, it's like, okay, great. It's like, you start on whatever day, you know? Um, and so I did that. And then pretty much it was the best option because instead of having to worry about, uh, you know, like a secondary income or something like that, 
pretty much I could work literally as many hours as I wanted. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but like there are regulations for how many hours you should have between like shifts and starting shifts and that sort of thing. And they definitely, when I was there, did not enforce this, which was great for me. <laughs> you know, sure. I'm someone that uh, found out that I can function on very little sleep. <laughs> Uh, and so sometimes we do, you know, an 80 hour work week or something. Wow. You know? uh, and airports run 24 seven. So, you know, this is not shifts like nine to five. This could be 5 PM to 5 AM. And then, right. you know, fortunately we live 15 minutes away from the airport. So, you know, they could call me up and I could be like, I'll be there in half an hour or something. Yeah. Um, and you know, every week they'll give you or every two weeks, they'll give you your next two weeks roster. And if you have any gaps, you know, the managers come around every day and they say, who's looking for more work? And if you still don't see them, you can go to the office and then sign up for more work. Wow. So, you know, some days I was doing 15, 16 hours, you know. Wow. And so uh, did that for, like, I quit a month early because I was just sick of it. Uh, and I had reached kind of the point where I, it was fine. <laughs> Uh, but I did that, I think seven months, no real holiday. Just did that the whole time. Yeah. You just, you had the goal in mind and I'm sure that helped you kind of push through this strenuous time because you're getting a high hourly, but I mean, you're spending a lot of time and you know, it's an important job too. So you, you know, you have to do a good job. Um, Wow, that's really interesting. And it sounds like I really liked when you said you, when you were first deciding what to do, you know, okay, I need to raise a lot of money to go to school. I really want to do this. All right, what do I need to do? Okay, I need to work really hard and earn a lot of money. Okay, what are my options? And then you said your stepfather, he already worked at the airport, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. And so he went and talked to all these managers, right? And it's like, then you saw what the options were from that and then made a decision. You had these two choices. And just the fact that you took the time to actively review your options and think about the consequences, the benefits, and probably some of the negatives. And then you made a decision and then you went full force into it. So I had a similar moment. It's funny you mentioned Berkeley because when I was deciding where to go to college, there was a few schools and one of them was Berkeley and they gave me a scholarship. It wasn't like one of the full scholarships. Um, And back then I didn't know anything about music school or anything. It just sounded like a cool place to go. It was like, oh, all the good musicians go there. I want to go there. You know, it was this exciting, right. you know, mysterious place to to go and and be cool and leave Texas and go to school. <laughs> it's at this prestigious place. And so but there was that and then I had a full ride offer at Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. And so I was deciding between the two, but this shiny, you know, object was dangling in front of me like oh but there's berkeley and that's really cool and so uh, we even went up there to visit and beg for more money basically and uh, (laughs) when i got back it was interesting my brother he said you know i just couldn't decide and he we just sat down together and he said well let's 
look at what it, your life would look like for both options. And so we did a little spreadsheet, super basic. We just kind of guessed what expenses would be. You know, okay, books are going to cost this. Tuition is going to cost this here. And at SMU, it's going to be like this. And it's going to cost this much if you're, you know, you're going to, if you're in Boston, then that means you're going to be probably flying home on holidays. And what are those, what are those travel costs add up to over the four years or however long you're there? I mean, we did it all just at a high level. And he wasn't doing that to tell me, don't do that. <laughs> but right. the spreadsheet clearly, it was like, do you want to take out an insane amount of loans and have a, certain kind of lifestyle after school, you know, really trying to fight back all those, all that debt? Or do you want to go here where it's taken care of? You're closer to home. I mean, it was just, and then also the number differences. And it was clear as day to me. And, and then I made the decision and I felt good about that decision versus if I had just, if I hadn't done that and I'd made the decision to go elsewhere or even to stay here, I wouldn't have that like confidence knowing why I made the choice. And so it sounds like when you were doing that, you really thought about the choices you had in front of you and why you chose to do the security job. And then it ended up working and you felt good about working long hours because you knew. And so that's really cool to hear. And I relate heavily to that. And I'm sure listeners um, can relate as well. It's really cool to hear a professional musician talk about working really hard in a completely different industry and field. And you mentioned the stigma that musicians want to be known as only making income from music. And there's some sort of pride that comes with that. Um, I used to have that. I don't anymore. Um, and we sh- let's actually talk about that. But it's really cool that you're sharing this story that I don't. Did you tell many people? Do do many musicians have you told them that story, or did you kind of just leave it to yourself? And the people that were around me knew it, right? Uh, I don't think it's it's like it's not a commonly known thing. Yeah, I think most of my friends, uh, like in my freshman year, probably knew it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, like when I got there. I was like, oh, I've achieved my goal. So I didn't really care about it. I was like, right, oh, it's, it's over. This next step, you know? Right, right. Uh, but yeah, you know, and like as I get further away from that time period, it's not something that I've referenced that much. It's sure. more kind of like, oh, yeah, I did that thing. And people, you know, they're more interested in the funny stories about what'd you confiscate or something instead of, <laughs> uh, you know, the why I did it. Right, right. So do you want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I guess we could call it like an income stigma for musicians. Maybe how you feel about it. Maybe what you've heard from other people. And uh, your thoughts on and about musicians who feel the need and pride from only making income from music. And maybe what the feeling is if you don't do that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and it's something I talk with a lot of parents about. You know, I think it was last Christmas, I was doing the Christmas concert, and this mum came up to me who uh, knew me from when I was younger. It's like, oh, my son's wanting to go ahead and do trombone, you know, uh, as a professional. I was like, great. And she kind of just said, yeah, I've accepted that he's not going to make lots of money. Mm. I was like, hey, 
wait a second here. You know, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like, you know, I think the easiest way to put it is well, music's the third largest industry in the world, I think. A lot of things like video games and movies or something mm-hmm. are like the top two. But anyway, it's in like the top five industries in the world. Like, how how has it become the fact that if you're going to pursue something that's seen as one of the top industries in the world, that you are seen as not to make any money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. that doesn't make sense, you know? <laughs> like, I'm sure there's more people that decide to do law or something like that, that it's seen as a high-paying job that don't make the same as the high-paying people. But if you say you're going to do a lot, law degree and going to becoming a lawyer it people just like oh you must make so much money you know even though probably entry-level law jobs still pay less or the same amount as music Mm -hmm. you know there's just that you know side of things and a lot of people you know like i understand where it comes from you know but uh, i think it's silly i think it's kind of like handicapping yourself before doing the work yeah you know i think you can really be successful in any field if you like, you know, I don't have to be a musician to be successful. It's about the mindset that comes along with it. And a lot of people, you know, you know, the, how I act and my personality, that sort of thing is probably a lot more different than majority of musicians that are kind of like, I just want to practice my scales in the practice room for seven hours. And then magically I'm going to be handed a lot of money, you know, You know, know, I definitely don't think that way. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of people that have got a lot of money in music that probably aren't best musicians as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so it goes to show that you don't need to be great at your instrument to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise, you know, pop singers wouldn't be, you know, so so famous and rich, you know. Mm but yeah, like I think it's a bit silly and I understand that it's kind of this age old thing that goes along with stuff. But at the same extent, I find there's also kind of this, something that I noticed as well when I got to North Texas first, like the first week or second month or something, is that there was kind of the opposite thing uh, or people that kind of felt that, but then, you know, uh, there'd be a sax player with like a Mark 6, maybe like a 13 grand horn or something. And their parents had bought it for them and they were starting at the school and their parents were paying for it all. And they just didn't understand, you know, like they, they just kind of took it all for granted, mm-hmm. but then they come out of it like, Oh, I'm not going to make any money or whatever. I'm like, man, you've just been given like a hundred grand free start, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people, what it stems from is they don't understand what is required to live, you know, you don't need much and most of, you know, I'm guessing most people that listen to this as well as you and me can relate to this is that a lot of people that play music, uh, you know, professionally have started off maybe a bit more privileged than what they think they have, mm-hmm. you know, and they, you know, as much as people are like, Oh man, I'm not making money or whatever. It's like, yeah, man, if I went to debt, you know, I could still go live with my parents, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I could work it out. It's not going to kill me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I'm sure there are people that they don't have that option, but people, if they come coming in saying, oh man, I can't make any money doing this career or they're thinking that all that, and they don't understand that 
they have quite a lot that they can fall back on if they do fail. <laughs> you know, uh, they're just kind of losing sight of the, the bigger picture. Right. Uh, and that's definitely something I see in a lot of people, even successful people, is that they don't understand that, you know, it's not as risky as what they think. Mm-hmm. And besides, you know, it's music. Everyone loves music. <laughs> you know, uh, as long as you understand how to market that, you should always have a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the, like, what, um, like I was saying before, word of mouth is the biggest thing that leads to more performances and more writing opportunities or whatever. Technically, if you're performing in front of, let's say, 100 people, then you have 100 more opportunities past that point to get more work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like most of my writing work now comes from cruise ship musicians. And, you know, I performed with one of them maybe three times a week for five months. Yet I now have a consistent income from that. Right. <laughs> Even when that wasn't my consistent income, when I was doing that, like performing with them, you know, it's like people just need to think that way. Uh, like if you're stuck in a desk job where you don't get to work with people, how are you going to get better working opportunities? Where in a, you know, an industry where you get to work with a lot of people in front of a lot of people, you can't maximize that, <laughs> you know, like pretty much they're handing it to you on a plate, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's how I look at it. I know a lot of people don't think the same way. But, no, that's uh, a good point. You know? Yeah. Like you can play all your scales and all keys and whatever play a hundred heads to standards and stuff but that doesn't mean jack all if you can't make enough money for rent right <laughs> you know certainly uh, anyway i know that's a bit different than uh the stigma of you know the poor musician or music's a poor thing but it, i think it just comes simply put it's like music is an industry that everyone likes everyone listens to music uh you know if it's so popular there should be a way to make money you know yeah yeah. Everyone listens to music, but not everyone list- goes to a lawyer or accountant every day, you know? So if that's the case, you know, surely you should be able to benefit of something that someone does daily. Yeah. You know? Can you talk a little bit about your experience with visas? So um, we, sure. have, we have a lot of international listeners, actually. I checked recently, and it's like over 30 countries people are listening wow. in, which is really cool. And um, And I've been around you know at north texas there are a lot of people dealing with these visas there's a lot of different kinds it depends on what country you're dealing with um and there's a i I met someone recently in arkansas who's a doctorate student and i think she was from thailand and so her situation was different and so i know a lot of people have different experiences with this some successful some not and you had an interesting kind of surprise experience can you just talk a little bit about what that looked like for you yeah. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time with visas, especially into the United States, but also visas into Australia because I bring artists from the United States and elsewhere into mm-hmm. Australia. So mm-hmm. I see it on both ends. And my wife is American. So uh, I've seen both sides of permanent resident visas in the United States and in Australia. But I'll, I'll speak more primarily about into America. Sure. Uh, because I think that's more applicable. Most people are wanting to go to America to play and perform than into Australia. <laughs> so I think that would be a bit more applicable. Um, but yeah, so I, I've had lots of different experiences with visas. 
the one I came in originally was the F1, which was a student visa. Uh, and pretty much just says you're allowed to enter the country as long as your visa lasts. Uh, and then you have a piece of paper, huge, probably one of the hardest visas to deal with. Like, I think it's even harder than the green card in terms of uh, uh, pieces of paper you need to fill out. Like, I took a picture before my uh, first time at the U.S. consulate, and it, it, was, it was something like 40 or 50 different forms. Like, the, wow. the stack of paper I ended up bringing out was probably like two or three inches, you know. Uh, yeah, and it, like, it, it, I think I talked with Niels as well, Holly's wife. Uh, for those that don't know, it's just another friend of ours that went to the University of North Texas from Australia. Uh, and he said it, it took him about a year for that process. And I think it probably took me about six months. But the problem with the student visa, uh, well, not the problem, but the hard thing is that you're dealing with both the U.S. government and you're dealing with the institution of the university. Now, if you're studying music, uh, at least in North Texas, the part of it is you have to get accepted into the school then into the school of music. And then I studied jazz. So you have to get accepted to the jazz studies course. And so before you get pretty much a tick, like, you know, you can hand in all the billion documents that you need to, to the university to get to that point, you still need to get accepted into the jazz studies course before they get the final tick to give you that uh, piece of paper that then the, U.S. government wants to then further your process. So pretty much what ends up happening is kind of the whole process is government says we need these five documents and then you can probably do four of them but the fifth one relies on something that the university needs to give but then to get that document from the university you need to give them 10 documents. So you give them that 10 and then you know they probably wait uh, you know maybe a week or two it depends if you're really picky and you want to phone call them and that sort of stuff obviously being on the other side of the world i don't want to call them three or four a.m every day <laughs> so uh you wait and you get back and then finally you've filled out the things and as long as everything's filled out properly then they get that or if they need it you know some of these it's like oh we need your real a copy of your real birth certificate it's like of course i don't want to mail my real birth certificate <laughs> so it's like some <laughs> right. of that stuff you know, I decided to do an in-person audition as well as a video audition. And now you don't, as an international student, you didn't have to do it in person. I just felt it was better uh, to do that. Um, and so I decided at that point, I just took all the documents I needed copies of. But that obviously then delayed that process. Wow. You know, so pretty much, you know, it's the same thing. And it's just different stages. And eventually, you know, you get that one piece of document from the university. And then you give it to the government and they, they say okay here's another one that you need and then you go back and forth back and forth and eventually it ticks off and then you can say okay we have a meeting in a month at the u.s consulate and you know by this point if you know if you can't get the visa there must be something seriously wrong with you like because mm. uh, you've just handed like hundreds of documents online mm -hmm. and then you need kind of you know you don't need to bring them all to the interview but you know, everything I've read is kind of like, oh, you should really have some of this stuff in case, you know, if you have a, you know, consular person that says, I need this, you don't want to then say, oh, I can bring it next. You know? Right. Um, and so that's a back and forth. I think it probably took me about six, seven months. You know, you want to get to the point where uh, for a music course, you want to make it so that when you get accepted into the course, that's the final thing 
you don't want that to be, you know, lower in the list. Um, and so, you know, do all that. And there's a bunch of crazy stuff, like financial stuff comes into play for student visas. You need a guarantor, similar to if you're renting for the first time. Interesting. You know, so I need to show that my dad, I, for my instance, it was my dad, had enough money to cover the whole course cost because wow. that's, you know, uh, if crap hit the fan, that's what would need to happen. Right. 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 Um, so there's all that sort of stuff too. But uh, it's just like this big back and forth. Whereas, you know, because I'm doing the green card application at the moment, most of it's, you know, between me and my wife, you know, and most of it we can fill out together at the same time. It's not like I'm going back and forth between institutions and governments, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's the F1 visa. And the thing with the F1 visa is it lets you study. Uh, you can work up to 20 hours on campus. Now you can work uh, outside of the campus, but you need to have your, I think it, I, I could be saying this wrong, but, uh, you know, the head of department or your primary professor. So for me, it would have been Lynn uh, on base or Rich. You know, of course, if I'm getting a gig, I'm not going to get Rich to sign. He's an arranging teacher, not a <laughs> performance teacher. So, um, but you could perform, but then that, that's a bigger issue, you know, um, but then they need to sign it off and it has to be an area of your study. It can't be like, I can't just do an outside job like security in America on that, on that visa. Now I could get that wrong, but that's at least what it kind of looked like when I was looking at those things and they have changed. Uh, but that's what my impression of it was. And then after you finish studying, you can do this thing called OPT. Can't remember. It's like operational practical training or something, but it allows you to stay in the country for six months, ideally the transition into a work visa. Now, uh, the terms are you have like six weeks or something before you can get, uh, you get kicked out. So in six weeks, you need to like find employment. Now it might not be six weeks, but it's like a 60 day, you know, some, wow. some sort of period of time where you had to find employment in that industry, you know? So for music, that's a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and then you get to stay in the country for six months, but the idea is that you transition into the work visa. So you wouldn't have mm-hmm. to leave. Um, now they, I haven't looked into this, but I believe it's changed because there was another student, uh, from Korea that was, uh, at North Texas when I was there, who was looking at doing this. I think they've changed it since, but the big thing in America offers is this artist visa. I can't remember what the category it's called, but the idea is that you need to show that you have a certain amount of performances. And so what you could do is go on your OPT and then transition into your artist visa. So you could do live performance, which is not something that uh, would count as a you know single entity payment. Uh, but I believe they've made it so you can't transition from the F one into the which is very silly, and I don't really know why they've done it. If it's true, and it might just be for some countries as well. I haven't really looked into it because it hasn't really impacted me. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely something that could impact those that want to study and then go on to being a performer. Right. In the country, you know, and it's annoying because it only really impacts, you know, uh, practical artists. You know, if you're a mathematician or something, you know, you're probably going to get paid by a university or something like that. It's not like you have to be your own business. And then if you want to work, then you need to get social security and all those sort of details that an American would normally have. 
but as an international person, there's another process. Like, a, you know, uh, if I want to work on campus, I'd need to get temporary social security. So I think like the University of North Texas owes me like $150 because I was like, there's no way I'm going to go through this month long process for 150 bucks yeah, for right. a gig that I got through the program. You know, <laughs> I was like, I'd rather just do the gig for free than not have to worry with all this hassle. I'm not breaking my visa terms right. you know, by accepting money without going through all of it. So, right. Wow. Uh, you know, and so that that's kind of the, the uh, study side of things. Now, uh, uh, when I was on the cruise ship, it was out of Royal Caribbean, but we did Mediterranean for a period of time, then we crossed over to the Caribbean where our home port was Puerto Rico, which is counted as a U.S. port. So because of that, you need a U.S. visa to work on the cruise ship. Uh, and so that's a different visa than, say, something like your H1B1, which is kind of your full-time, full-time uh, residency visa, uh, which is what most people try to get, but it's very expensive. It requires yeah, your business to then sponsor you, which I think total comes up. It's, you know, maybe up to 10 grand or something. Like it, it's something very serious to buy. Wow. Uh, and it's why most people, like most business turned off by getting, uh, you know, international people to work because it's so much cheaper just to get citizen right 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 uh, but the one for the cruise ships is a different visa it's called like c1d1 part of it's a, a tourist visa uh, which allows you to leave the ship to do tourist things <laughs> and then oh. one of them that allows you to work from a port so it's like people like in, uh, on airplanes mm. ships that sort of stuff so you can work from a port but you know you can't work on land wow. you know um, and so that one's really easy to get. That one wasn't really a problem. It's pretty much you just need your employer to say, you know, give you a signed thing saying this is this person does have a job. Call this person if you don't believe us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's not really a problem. You know, it's such an easy like so many people do. You know, uh, any international person wanting to, uh, you know, if, if you're an air hostess of any country. That's doing international flights to the US, we need it, you know. So it's that one really took no time. It was probably like a week or less, you know, a very quick one. And tourist visas are also very quick, you know. There's not much there. I, like I'm sure they're much harder if you know convicted felon or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. as long as you have no background with that side of things, uh, and the more of these you get, like you're on the system, so right. they can see. It. Uh, and then uh, Australia has this great visa for the E3 visa which is pretty much like an H1B1, which is the, the full-time work visa, but uh, uh, doesn't have any cost requirements for sponsorship. So it's pretty much uh, as long as they're willing to hire you, it doesn't cost the business anything to get you if you're from Australia. And that's because they, I guess the US has decided that they want to increase numbers uh, into America. Uh, mm-hmm. from Australia and so they've offered this now the only thing with this is it's not permanent residence track or citizen track yeah so if, if you wanted to live there full-time uh you know and turn into a permanent resident you, it's not considered as permanent resident. it's always you're under the uh, 
uh, impression that you're going to eventually move back to Australia. So I think a lot of people get in on the E3 and once they know the business that they're working for, transition then to the H1B1 mm-hmm. and get sponsorship because they know the business and the business knows them and they want to invest that. And then when you're H1B1, then you're permanent residence track and you get a green card citizen. Uh, but yeah, it, it, like it's all pretty complicated. And this with the green card, there's many different tracks. Like I'm on marriage track, uh, which is far the easiest one. There's no mm-hmm. wait period. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was going on a work-based one, I think it's over eight years. Like they have a thousand cap per year that they give. And I think Trump wanted to do that for the marriage one, which is silly, but he hasn't done it. Uh, so get in now. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. This is a lot. I mean, you, what I'm hearing is if you're thinking about doing this, or even if you're already over here and you're a student, then you want to do the work and versus performing, doing the artist visa. I mean, you need to get on it immediately. You need to be yeah. thinking about it <laughs> because who knows how long it's going to take. And I mean, it sounds incredibly stressful. It kind of sounds like buying a home. Like it's, yeah. but probably worse and takes longer and more stressful. And buying yeah. a home is not fun. But um, <laughs> I mean, wow, like, you know, you said for Niels, it took a year for you, it was six, seven months, but, and you're trying to coordinate it, lining it up with, you know, school starts at the same time every year. And so yeah. making sure you're set before that happens and having all the documents and, you know, there's no way you can be an expert when you first start. So maybe they throw a a curveball at you that you had no idea. No one else has ever had to deal with and you don't have the thing and it all crumbles and doesn't work. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot and it sounds incredibly stressful. And also what I'm hearing is for our American listeners, you kind of mentioned this about, you know, feeling basically grateful for the position that you're in, maybe for someone who had help to go to college and they're, um, they're thinking, Oh, I can't make any money. Like this isn't working, blah, 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 blah. Versus someone like you who worked really hard to get there. You know, you did it all yourself. It's the same thing here. Like for Americans, you know, we can take, we can be grateful for our situation, not having to go through something like that. To, to work and be a musician or, or to do anything here. So that's something to keep in mind as well. You know, if you're having a hard time, even as an American, know that you've already got, you know, you said earlier, like some people have a $100,000 head start. And, you know, for, for just for being American, you in some ways have whatever value you want to put on it, a head start there too. Sure, sure. And that's really cool to hear. And I'm, I'm, Glad it worked out for you. It sounded like you had that hiccup, but you know you're you're coming back, and so, um, so I want to transition into the festival because you're you're coming back, but you're doing this festival in Australia. So I want to know more about the festival, but also um, we can we can finish the festival conversation with how you're going to transition when you come back here. Sure. So let's talk about what the festival looks like. And, you know, kind of how it started and, and what, what it looks like now. And you mentioned a youth program, too. And then also, mm-hmm. you know, what does it look like for you to be just managing bigger numbers and bigger artists and a lot more people? Yeah. Um, so pretty much when I got back here, uh, it was quite a shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, was planning to live in Texas and had all the lease and stuff signed up. So. Uh, 
many months. And then, you know, I just recorded my big band album and gone like eight grand in the hole on my credit card. And I was expecting to have this job, which I had accepted to pay off that, <laughs> you know, and then I was back here with no job, no money, <laughs> uh, living at my parents' house and just very thankful that I could eat food and sleep and not have to worry about that. But then yeah, yeah. also all my, all my crap was in an apartment that, uh, you know, I only had rent for, for another month. And so I had to trust my friends to move stuff for me and wow. get rid of things and try and coordinate that while being here. And at the same time, you know, I was only meant to be here for two or three weeks and then that turned into two and a half years. Right. Uh, you know, uh, at least two and a half years now. Um, uh, so kind of that first six months, cause I kind of got back, I guess, June or sometime around that, um, uh, 2017 and then uh i think that six months was kind of just kind of like hanging in getting everything together um uh, and that by christmas uh i was back it was fine because uh my partner of my girlfriend at the time which is now my wife uh had the big thing was she decided that she was going to postpone her studies to move down here with me wow um in that period of time and so, which was probably the biggest thing that we worked at that time, other than the finance stuff, which, you know, again, worked a bunch of hodgepodge things, retail manager, whatever, you know, at that time, I just kind of went back to that same post uh, pre-study mode. Yeah. And yeah. Had a bunch, like I had this album that I had crowdfunded half of like all the upfront costs, but then back inside of thing, I was like, I'll just deal with that when I need to. You know, which was still a like half the cost of the album, so it was still like yeah. twelve grand or whatever. Right, right. Um, and so it was kind of like, oh, I need to do that. Have no money, and all my crap is in Texas. And then Megan decided to move down here, so we kind of had to work out all that side of things, the visa side of stuff for her, being able to live and work down here, because uh, there's no way that she was going to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to study the international rate down here. You know. Um, so that, you know, kind of everything up until Christmas that year, uh, nothing happened, you know, it was kind of just dealing with everything. And by Christmas, you know, uh, we were kind of just dealing with everything, dual income then anyway. Uh, and, you know, the whole, the, the biggest goal was to move out of my parents' place. You know, they kind of gave us a six month deadline. They said, you have six months and then you have to be out of here. Now I know they would have given me more if I needed it. But I was like, well, that's a good deadline anyway. Anyway, so six months and then we were definitely financially great. Uh, moved out, no problem. Had money in the bank, whatever. And then all my friends were kind of like, you know, because uh, they knew I'd just done this big band album. And they're like, oh, when are you going to form your Australian big band or whatever? And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like people kept being persistent. But I was just like, no. Nah. And so I kind of laid low because I was like, maybe I'll move back to America in two months or something. Because right. the only thing that was stopping me was the money. Uh, you know, what I did was I went on a tourist visa for six months to find work. And all my money from the cruise ship had paid off uh, that six-month time to find full-time work, which would have worked perfectly if the job had gone through. Right? Mm -hmm, right. So I could have done that again. You know, I could have just saved a little bit of money and done that again and then 
just tried, you know, something else. Um, but uh, we decided to stay here to longer. And then pretty much uh, what, I re- what I was thinking was like, man, I'd really love to bring the big band that I recorded with down to Australia. And that's kind of the, the idea that. And now, you know, that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars or something. Right. Something that I was like, you know, this is stupid. You know, I just recorded an album that was like you know, 25 grand or whatever. There's no way I can make that jump, you know. Anyway, the idea was something like that. Uh, and then uh, I was like, oh, you know, it'd be great. Why don't we get an artist to come out? So in my head, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll get Wayne Bergeron, right? Because uh, one of our colleagues, Drew Zarimba, writes charts for Wayne. You know, and I was like, great, I have it in. You know, Drew can just call him up and say, you want to go to Australia? Anyway, he, Drew kind of talked with him at a gig and he was kind of chill and never went really any further until I had more stuff uh, set in plans on my side. Anyway, the mm. same sort of time frame as this, um, uh, my old high school, which I kept pretty close connections with just because they're a better music school in Melbourne, um, uh, had contacted Rich uh, DeRosa, my professor, mm-hmm. Uh, about buying some charts. Anyway, Rich uh, said, kind of like on an offhand comment on an email to them, it's like, oh, you should bring me and Dick Odds and Gary Dial out from that album and we'll work with everyone, you know? Anyway, I was doing this, uh, you know, half-size big band, so like 12-piece band or something. And one of my old teachers playing trombone in the band. I was just telling him, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really thinking about bringing an artist out, maybe try and get more of the guys from the band out and it's like oh it's funny you say that maybe you should talk with rich because he was saying something about coming out and i was like well as soon as rich was interested i was like well ditch wayne bergeron i'm gonna work with someone i know really well because if it goes down hell you know he'll understand a bit more than <laughs> someone that i don't know right uh, anyway so I contacted rich and then uh that kind of formed the start of what became the festival that year um, but never did I think of it as a festival to begin with. I was just like, mm-hmm. I'm just bringing Rick out, and then if I have money, I'll bring out Dick Oates and Gary Dial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, Blackburn was Blackburn High School was the high school that I went to. They were willing to put some money for workshops and stuff. So then it just became kind of project management. Uh, and I had like a little board of people, which I was under the impression that we're all working it out. Uh, but yeah, it definitely didn't happen like that. And uh, kind of maybe three months beforehand, I realized it was really just on me. So if it went down financially or something, it was still my problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really annoying because I've been listening to their opinions for three or four months up until that point and waiting for them to get back to stuff. And then when I realized it was all up to me, I was like, well, I should have just ditched them to begin with and done it all my way mm-hmm. you know it would have saved three or four months of time yeah uh so i, I uh uh put it together and we didn't really have money to bring out anyone else but rich like drew came and uh, aaron hedenstrom ended up coming as well uh, but you know rich was the main main person like those guys came out as kind of secondary things uh, secondary artist, but Rich was the primary artist. Anyway, we booked a string of gigs at a venue here, a local jazz club, and they kind of said, look, if you're putting this many concerts on, you need to call it something. And I was like, okay. So this is kind of when it turned into like a festival sort of thing. <laughs> uh, 
because uh, I never at that point I had thought about it as a festival because <clears throat> it was mainly education based things. Yeah. And, you know, we partnered with a bunch of people because, you know, ended up being something like $30,000 turnaround or something for a week and a half. And, uh, you know, I didn't have 30 grand that I could spend on this, you know, and I didn't want to spend 30 grand out of my own money and not make any, you know. Right. Uh, and so I turned around uh, and they said, you need to put a title on it. So we called it Big Band Through the Ages because originally we were going to do a multiple concerts of different big band music uh, mm. through different eras. But then it mainly just became like a youth education thing. And so through the ages kind of had a double meaning of, you know, with the younger people. Um, and so that worked out really well and it went off really well and smoothly. And because I was dealing with so many people, the money came from, you know, maybe 15, 20 different places. Uh, and the annoying thing is that I, like, I had to deal with it all myself. So I was running through my same business number as mm. all my writing and my performing stuff. So our tax year is a bit different than the American tax year. So I'm only just dealing with that now. Uh, wow. uh, yeah, I still need to talk to the accountant. Uh, so that kind of all happened just out of this one conversation of, Rich saying this would be interesting, me kind of having a similar idea, uh, and then just putting the things together, and then it kind of became this festival. And not that I ever wanted to turn into a festival, but one of the people we partnered with was this youth organization called the Victorian Youth Jazz Collective, which is kind of uh, notorious now because the head of it uh, was this guy that, uh, at the same time as we were working with him, not that we knew, uh, had done. Uh, inappropriate things with underage women. Oh, no. <laughs> and then, so, pretty much uh, just after this festival in August, he got me in to work with him uh, and one of the bands that he ran for like a month or so. And then in like November 2018, December 2018, it kind of all came out that he'd done all this stuff. And then, very quickly, this whole organization just crumbled. Oh, man. Uh, and the big thing is last year, you know, I knew that if we wanted to do this festival again, that it wouldn't work. I, could, I couldn't rely on the same people every year to fund it, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the big thing is like I wanted this to become something that was maybe more annual, whether it has the same structure or not. Uh, but we did a, I was like, oh, I need to find a more stable source of income other than my money, <laughs> you know? Uh, especially it was about 30 grand, you know, for that time. Anyway, the youth program crumbles and I was like, well, I could just create my own youth program based on that. And then, oh, look, there's money, <laughs> you know? Right. And so uh, that's kind of what happened. So Big Ben Through the Age just kind of changed from a once-off festival into like a youth organization this year. So we're, half, you know, just a bit more than halfway through the year. And so we set up the structure with five different projects and then multiple guest artists come in. So Drew came out again earlier this year. And then Aaron Henstrom was meant to come out, but then he broke his arm. So we had another artist, Brandon Moore, come out. And then they're working with some local people as well. And then uh, Rich came out. And the big thing is because we couldn't afford Dick Odds last year. Uh, this year, I really wanted to have Dick Odds come out. So we had Rich and Dick come out this year. Uh, and because I knew that what the annual budget would be, 
based on student fees and that sort of thing. It was kind of like, oh, we have this cash injection mm-hmm. of like 70 grand for the year, you know, like more than double what was spent last year, mm-hmm. you know. So we did that and that kind of turned into what is being a very successful year and I think students are really enjoying it. In Melbourne, there's since 2012, there hasn't been a youth jazz program uh, in the whole state. Uh, there's a classical program, a very good concert band and orchestra program. Uh, but they used to have a jazz area and they discontinued that. We had a meeting with the CEO about that recently, just kind of like, why did you do this? Is it something that we should be aware of, you know, like for the continuing, continual uh, growth of our program? Mm-hmm. And they kind of said, he said, it probably was more a finance thing. You know, if you have an orchestra of 80 members, that's 80 paying kids to one director of expense, you know, whereas a big band's 17. Right. You know, so for them, it was more financially viable just to do larger ensembles that are found in the classical. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that kind of turned into this year's youth program. And then we have a couple more artists coming out later this year, uh, which will be lots of fun. And December is going to be really crazy. Uh, but then, Again, this August was kind of, we probably had a bit more stuff going on than the year. But the idea was, you know, a problem that I found last year when we did the festivals, so many events happening within one week, 10 day sort of time frame. You know, you can't rely on that many people coming to back to back to back things. So I was like, well, why don't we just spread it out throughout the year? You know? Yeah. So instead of having, like, even though, you know, we might refer to it still as like a festival this year. Uh, really, it, it's a year-long program instead of being a you know one-week stint. And then, uh, yeah. So, and then the big thing is uh, last year, um, through another organization, they brought out Vincent Gardner, who's the lead trombone player of Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, mm-hmm. and uh, he came out through another organization, and he did a project with. Uh, uh, with Rich with Jazz and Lincoln Center, uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of Leonard Bernstein. And so pretty much we were able to tee that off here as part of the festival. And that was kind of like the finishing concert of the festival, was that, which was lots of fun. And then I, I got to meet Vince. Um, and that's kind of plays into where the program's going now because Vince is doing kind of setting up a Jazz and Lincoln Center that in Houston jazz houston and uh was talking with him a bit but not too much uh and then uh lincoln center came out the whole band in march or late february this year and so i called up vince and said hey where are you at let's hang that sort of thing and through that you know i got to meet a lot of the band and we're talking a lot and more about the business side of it instead of just like the first time we met him was more one-on-one uh you know, saying, hey, you know, nice to meet you. This is what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. No time, you know, here's the concert, done, that's it. But this time we had a few more days because uh, the whole band was here and then kind of explained a bit more of the back end side of things. Uh, whereas, you know, before I didn't know how Lincoln Center operated or how mm-hmm. Jazz used to operate. So he kind of talked with me through that and kind of explained some things that he saw both in Australia with education as well as um, uh, you know issues all across the board with mm-hmm. things that could be uh, 
better, not just within Melbourne or my organization or whatever, just in, just in general. And mm-hmm. one thing he said that kind of stuck with me uh, the second time I got to talk to him was that there's a lot of people doing the same thing, but no one's working together, <laughs> you know, especially with youth organizations or whatever, right? Um, and that kind of stuck with me. And I was like, well, you know, uh, I got two things out of that. I was like, well, I should be integrating this, the education component of Big Man Through the Ages, whether it be locally in the same state, in the same city, or also nationally across different states or even internationally. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, in Melbourne, there's not really a world-class big band either, you know. You know, that's a, there's not many places that have, you know, you could probably do on one hand the amount of world-class big bands still alive, you know, that operate on a full-time basis. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, kind of out of that, we decided, oh, well, I was like, well, why don't we try and create that? in next year's program, 2020. And so what's happening now is that we're transitioning from this big band through the ages title, which was, you know, more of a youth thing to now more general title called jazz Melbourne. And so we're in the process of creating a full company with that. Uh, whereas before I was still running through all my business side of things. Now mm-hmm. it's running through a corporate company structure. You know, there's going to be a full board, you know, how taxes and all that stuff work. Uh, it's a lot different with a large company, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, pretty much through that one conversation, I was like, well, why don't we try and do this here? Uh, you know, I now have the youth program, so I know there's a budget. And then all this does is add, you know, concert hall style performances with a, you know, professional big band, not at a jazz club. Uh, and even though the jazz clubs here are great, it's, you know, bigger audience, you mm-hmm. know more prestige like i don't if we're getting other big name artists i want to be able to offer them a nice performance you know not just in some jazz club setting something similar to what you would get if they were touring around with an orchestra or whatever right um and so kind of what happened since february to now is been working out how that all works you know like i don't know how you know the dallas symphony orchestra set up or here the melbourne symphony orchestra how do the how does funding work for those concerts right Uh, how does all that stuff work so that's kind of what we're dealing with now is working out all of the back-end things that people that just go see the concerts don't understand Uh, and i was lucky enough that just the other day vince was again in town for the same thing he was here last august he kind of comes out every year at august uh, and we're having another conversation was able to give me more info in the back end because he's kind of doing something five years ahead of what we're doing here, you know, but he's still kind of like 20 years behind what Lincoln's in. So uh, there's kind of like a really easy comparable chain of what we need to do, mm-hmm. even though it's America uh, and not Australia, it's still a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. And so kind of what next year looks like is that instead of just being this youth program, we have the youth program running. And we're going to expand on that again and offer more workshops and areas that we see that whether universities don't offer it here in the courses or needs that are met outside of those uh, music-related things, you know, finance being one of them, you know, especially to the kids, like what I was saying about invoicing, 
that sort of stuff, uh, offering workshops and clinics based on that on a more regular basis, as well as this professional uh, band component. Uh, and the idea is now, as much as I'm still like a director of these bands and stuff, next year I'll kind of take a step back more as, you know, like a CEO sort of mm-hmm. look. Right. And then the idea is that there's going to be enough money in the budget that as long as we've done it properly now, uh, and that'd be a big problem that we'll have to deal with next year if it's done incorrectly. But, uh, you know, I can step back and then we can pay those positions to do those roles. Right. Uh, and that will allow for more growth. So instead of just being me this year or last year, we then we already have a small team now working on it, but then there'll be pay positions and that will in turn just pay me a salary uh, on top of what I already do as well. Right. And that, that gives me the freedom of being able to do, uh, you know, as many charts or gigs as I want, you know, uh, based on how much workload I do. Yeah. Uh, instead of having to worry about the hustle and bustle of finding that work sometimes. Right. Uh, which I like the idea of that more. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people saying, you know, how can I make an impact musically? And they're so thinking about how can my instrument make an impact? And they're not thinking about how they can make an impact on a more larger yeah, stretch, you know? Definitely. Uh, but yeah, so it kind of looks like we're incorporating for next year and then education goes out because, you know, the performance is, kind of what I was talking with Vince and I've talked with Winton Marsalis a little bit about this. Uh, you know, the performances kind of pay for themselves, you know, and in these big concerts, that's kind of how it's set up. But if you want to make money or you want there to be money for positions, you need to have some other area mm-hmm. Whether you know, there's all these different areas of funding. Yeah. And we've been talking with a lot of professionals about how arts associations and organizations get funding. But, the big thing is you can't just rely on this one stream of performances right. because that just kind of pays for itself, you know? So fortunately we have this big education thing that we've been working on now for you know, nearly two years and that will kind of keep expanding. And that's going to be kind of the thing that creates the business side of it and allows those positions to happen. And the performances can amplify or decrease as much as we want uh, because they'll just kind of pay for themselves for the structure. So if we wanted a whole program of 12 concerts, throughout the year, something like that. It could happen, but maybe not the wisest thing to do now, but something that we could easily build into um, and it would still only really pay for itself, even though we do maybe 10 or 11 more concerts than what we have planned next year. You know, it's still, we can't expect, oh, that's even though our, you know, cash flows made over a million dollars this year, that's not really a million dollars profit margin. So, uh, so we're just kind of looking at those sort of things, but that kind of, you know, when I move, the idea is that I'll just come back for the, the premiere performance. Right, right. And so it'll be kind of more Lincoln Center structure where it's just a week I would have to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there'll be enough money within the company that it just pays it. But I could still run it wherever I am. Right. You know, similar to how when I write, you know, a lot of my clients are, are international, you know. Right. I can, I can write anywhere in the world, whether I'm on a plane or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I like that freedom. And so I like to incorporate that into my business structure too. Yeah. That sort of stuff. But that, that's kind of where, it, where it's going. Uh, you know, everything that I do kind of gets bigger, uh, which is a good thing. But also, 
you know, there's more stress associated with that. More responsibility. Yeah. You know, uh, it once was, you know, let's everyone pull together 20 bucks and we'll hire a recording session for <laughs> two hours. And now it's like, oh, yeah, let's do that. But with hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like in my head, I'm like, well, you know, if we do double the concerts the next year in 2021, you know, that's going to be, you know, more than half a million dollars. Yeah. I'm like, that's not money that I'm used to dealing with, you know? And so at the same process of it's growing, it's kind of like, oh, there's still the kind of component of like, this is still a lot of money relative to what I will make, you know? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's kind of just the, the trend that's happened every year. It's kind of whatever I've done, you know, response was 15 grand. And then Vesuvius, my big band album was 25 grand. And then this first festival was 30 grand. And now this year is like 70 ish grand. And the next year goes six digits, you know? Yeah. So yeah, and a big jump from this year to next year just because of the expansion. But right. Uh, you know, if I keep going down this path, you know, it's going to be millions pretty quickly, you know, before I'm 30, you know? Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's really cool. I mean, you're, what's interesting is that all this is connected to jazz specifically. And I'd say right. most people wouldn't even imagine that that was possible, especially when yeah. people talk about like the big band era was decades ago. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, 80 to 100 years ago. And yeah. um, so it's really cool. And the education part is really important. And it was really cool to hear you say that you're going to be teaching some finance and like invoicing and business stuff. I mean, you know, that's like music to my ears. So that's yeah, yeah. really important work that you're doing. And it that's really cool. So on that note of like teaching at the festival, some finance stuff. Um, I want to ask just a few questions. First, real quick, you mentioned your mother kind of first saying, oh, you can't make money with music. You don't want to, you kind of had to convince her almost like a job interview. Have you talked to her since about that <laughs> or, you know, come back to that moment at all with her? Yeah. Uh, like, I don't think we have those questions, like those sort of moments anymore. <laughs> it kind right. of passed. Like she, she, now that I've proven that I make, enough money I kind of with her kind of once you know you start working with a high name artist or something and she's like oh you know she she doesn't she doesn't think about the money she's like oh you must be at a certain level then you know <laughs> uh, but yeah like she's more worried about time management now mm-hmm. she's like you making sure you get enough time off you know uh not not the money side of things mm-hmm. so well that's I don't good think worried about that <laughs> So in regards to like financial literacy and financial planning, so I talk about and teach saving, retirement, investing, taxes, income, um, estate planning, that's for people um, further down the line, but a lot of other issues like that. And then self-awareness, mindset, physical, mental health. But in terms of the financial side, I'm curious, um, you know, just on a broad level, are you saving? Are you saving for retirement? Are you investing? Um, do you budget? Maybe just give us a little bit of how you don't have to give us any specifics, but just, you know, what are you, you know, you've, you've been growing all these years, right? You're, you've been generating mm-hmm. income, but my stressor is you can make as much money in the world, but if you don't know what to do with it, 
most likely you're going to squander it. You know, um, lottery winners, <laughs> right. high-paying celebrities and NFL players, you know, a lot of them go bankrupt. So if you don't know what to do with it, then it doesn't really matter how much you make. And a lot of the music industry, I guess, educators want to teach musicians how to make money as musicians, right? There's like the DIY musician movement, and, and that's all great. We want to learn how to generate income. But no, as far as I could tell, no one's talking about what to do with it once you get it. So right. can you talk about, just at a high level, um, how you're dealing with um, your finances once you do get that income? Yeah. So you... I don't operate nearly at the, you know, what you would probably call a normal uh, sort of thing. You know, uh, I've definitely been grown up and taught uh, by my parents about, yeah, you need it for this amount of money away or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. my, my dad's a great example of that. You know, mm-hmm. he, here we have a thing called superannuation, which is kind of like a pension sort of thing where you put a certain amount away per paycheck and you don't get it until you retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's law here so i have to do a certain amount of that anyway um so like uh i'm not really worried too much about that side of things just because mm. i need to deal with that mm-hmm. like if i work at high school you know i think it's like 8.5 percent or something of my paycheck will go into that all right wow. uh, so uh you know in terms of retirement sort of stuff you know sometimes i wish i had that money now <laughs> uh, it's like yeah crash the car or something wouldn't mind three grand out of that you know or something uh, but uh, uh so in terms of that sort of thing you know grew up with a lot of yeah this is what you do and you know my mom comes from you know she's probably lower middle class whereas my dad's you know upper middle you know whatever the level above that you know like a high paid person whatever, right mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't act like that still. He would still uh, invest his money or pocket away. Like his area of accounting is in stock market. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, even though I haven't dealt with that sort of investment, if I had to, uh, he'd be able to help me quite mm-hmm. easily. But uh, both of them were very frugal with how they dealt with their money. So even though I've grown up seeing that, uh, I definitely probably don't show it as much you know uh, i've been fortunate enough to get a lot of work uh over time and that's you know fortune is probably more uh come out of a lot of hard work of finding that work but what i find is i just kind of invest it in myself a bit mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. so like i'll do this big project right so i'll put x amount of money into that and then so as x as the projects go bigger and bigger and bigger like this year you know I think it's what we'll get like a 10 grand profit or something, you know? Yes, I could take that. But if I invest that into next year and that comes a 50 grand profit, you know, I'd rather do that. And that allows me to get that next thing. So instead of going to an investment, say stocks or real estate or something, which are probably safer, <laughs> uh, this is probably more of a, a self investment where, yeah, uh, you know, I still declare the odds, so I know how risky it is because I'm creating it. Right. Uh, but what I found is that, you know, that's kind of what I've done since albums or whatever. So you invest some of your own income and then you get it back on sales or whatever, you know. And so I've just kind of done that with everything as it's gone more. So 
how I live is I probably live more what it looked paycheck to paycheck because all that excess money goes into these projects. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of each year, if the project gets bigger, I could technically pull out and get that excess. Uh, but, you know, I'm only 25. So <laughs> it's not like I really, like if I lose that money now, I'm not really too worried about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in 20, 30 years, maybe I'll worry a bit more, but, if I do this correctly for 20, 30 years, the 10 grand from this year is probably a lot more than 10 grand. Yeah. You know? Uh, and so that's the idea. So, you know, ideally, you know, next year it pays me a salary plus also the profit margin. Right. You know? And so in that, that 10 grand turns into whatever salary I decide, you know, for the year. Right. Uh, so already you can see return on investment. But that's kind of how I operate. And I know that's definitely not standard. And it's not something I would definitely, like I wouldn't recommend it to people unless they have that mindset. And, you know, you don't want to jump into something with a lot of risk without having, you know, a a track record of it. Yeah, definitely. You know, but that's kind of how I operate. Um, And so, you know, obviously having dual income does help a lot. you know, uh, with day-to-day expenses. Right. So I think, you know, cause I do a lot of my, my income comes from writing, you know, that's sporadic, you know, I could get, you know, a $2,000 paycheck today for one job and then maybe not get something else for another two weeks or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I would say I cover all my expenses and then everything else that I have extra just goes straight in. But then, you know, I always have some work on retainer. So like if something comes up, it'd be kind of the same as having a savings account, but I always have kind of three or four months of work uh, in the backlog. So if something did come up, hospital expense, whatever, you know, I could cash in on that pretty quickly. Uh, and that has happened. Like this year I crashed my car, I need to pay a couple grand or whatever. I had that work ready, you know. Uh, and that's just kind of how I operate is I always have that stuff in advance. Now it's probably not the most frugal, especially given my, uh, upbringing, but, uh, it has been working so far, you know, that's an uh, interesting form of an emergency fund. Yeah. No. And cause again, cause it's a uh, dual income. I don't really need to worry too much about, uh, just my income too. Right. Right. Um, but I, I would say I'm definitely more of a risk taker. And because I've seen the payoff of lesser risks, yeah, I more risky now. But I choose to invest in myself more than investing elsewhere because I yeah. can control the odds a bit more. Definitely, you know? and that's the entrepreneurial mindset, right? That's what right. entrepreneurs exactly. do. The you know you're investing back into the business, and you're seeing those returns get higher and higher. And like you said, you have more control, and you're not just passively kind of setting it aside, hoping it gets the standard right. return. Yeah. And like with like taxes and those sort of expenses, you know, I pay them quarterly here. Mm-hmm. So I always know kind of what I need to have set aside this yeah. year. I need to uh, register for GST, which is like a 10% goods and service tax mm-hmm. on everything, which I need to go to an accountant in the next week or two to talk about mm-hmm. and deal with that. Cause everything I do now will need to be, I need to have 10% of that go to another bank account that I don't touch. Right, right. Uh, but yeah. No, this is really great. And I'm, I'm sure listeners, you know, over the course of this podcast and all the blogs and stuff that I've done, you know, are realizing that 
you were you were kind of touching on this like there's so much more than practicing your scales in the practice room not just for like <laughs> your your networking and your career and your and your musicianship but right. like even in the last 5 minutes what you've been talking about has nothing to do with music but it has everything to do with yeah. music in a way because i like to say money first music forever like if you take care of uh, some of these basic things like you just mentioned like there's this new 10% tax that you need to be aware of if you take care of that you can set that up probably automatically potentially right. and then you don't have to th- so you've taken care of the money part in terms of this item and then now you can get back to your music right and right. so it's not something that's like needs to be on your mind 24/7 i like to say if you just spent 5 minutes a day learning about this stuff and or right. taking action like talking to your accountant it's probably a more than five minute conversation, but sure, you know, sure. it's not something that needs to take over your life. You can still have a robust music career um, or hobby, whatever you decide. And so it's really cool to hear you say this because you, you're doing so many things musically, yet you've got under the hood all this stuff going on that we've been talking about today. And that's really cool, I think, for listeners to hear that that they should be thinking about these things too. And Definitely. so this was a question I asked in the pre-show form, and I think it's the most important question I could ask, but why is financial literacy among musicians important to you? Yeah, well, I think uh, if you want to operate and expand your business, it's the most important thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I think I answered in that form or something. Uh, it was something like everyone, it really no one teaches you as a musician that you're a small business owner yeah. or something, you know, right. like everyone, your, your university degree, private teachers, whatever, they're going to tell you practice these things and tell you how to perfect your craft, but they're not going to tell you how to sell your craft yeah. or how to make money off that. Yeah. And that's your business side of things. You know, really you should probably do half a music degree and half a business management degree, right? you know, uh, <laughs> to be successful, you know? Um, and I think it's very, like going back to that stigma of, uh, you know, the parent or whatever, not thinking this child will make money. That's something it's like, again, you know, if this was more common, you know, like everyone knows the, how to make money in most other fields. Uh, if it was more commonly known within music, you know, you don't have to be your Britney Spears or whatever. Uh, to be making money and this majority of musicians aren't that well known and still able to live and operate quite well uh, within the means, you know, uh, totally. and it, I think if there's more, uh, more of that information spread, especially amongst musicians and people that only become musicians, because, you know, that's where people get that stigma, you know, then it will kind of disappear and then you'll see people less stressed, you know, I think most musicians go through mental illness at some period of time or something like that, you know, uh, mental health problems. I've definitely seen a lot of people with that sort of issues mm-hmm. based on this sort of stress. How do I make money for rent or whatever? Yeah. It's like that shouldn't be something you need to think of if you've got a bachelor degree in that field. Right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, you know, I think that's why I find it important, mm-hmm. you know. So if there was one piece of final advice you could give listeners, what would that be? 
I think the big thing is kind of what I said right at the start, uh, you know, nothing's impossible. You know, I'm not talking like, you know, flying like Superman or something, <laughs> you know, um, it, the way I like to live my life is, you know, the worst thing I can, I can think of that could happen to me is dying. Right. You know, now this is not meant to be like a religious thing, but I'm a Christian. Right? So for me, dying is not even seen as that bad a thing. You know, it's when you die, you go to a better place than where you are now. Mm. So to me, that's not really, really that bad a thing. So for me, I take is lots of risks because what's the worst that the risk could pay off to me dying. And now we're talking about music. So very rarely are we going to be dealing with death. You know, it's not like we're in a third world country where we, my risk may mean that we don't get to eat. Right. Right. Uh, or something like that. And most people come from the same sort of background as me where they have at least some sort of family structure, which if they, if crap is the fan, they can fall back onto that. Mm-hmm. But you know, most people don't think of that sort of thing. And because of that, they find things, you know, like most people's dreams like oh i want to become as good as charlie parker or whatever it's like yeah don't just dream about it just do it you know yeah yeah and if you think it's impossible you're going to stop it stop yourself from doing it you know like i said right at the start it's just time you know uh if you want to be pretty good at something like yeah there's some sort of degree of talent but most of it's time. yeah you know uh like I say, this to a lot of my students, like if I do 10 hours of work a day and you do one hour of work a day, then I'm going to be, you know, 700 hours of work at the end of the week. And you're going to have, you know, Oh, is that right? 70 hours, sorry, 70 hours of work at the end of the week. They're going to have seven. So of right. course I'm going to have that much more improvement right. than that. Yet most people won't look at the time. Yeah. You know, but yeah, if people go into thing thinking it's impossible, then, you've handicapped yourself from the start. Yeah, they're probably right. If you think it's impossible, yeah. you're right. If you think yeah. it's doable, you're right. Whatever you think, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like it looks different for everyone. Yeah. You know. Definitely. My my journey to North Texas is different than most people's journey. Yeah. But I said I want to go, and that's why I tell a lot of kids here if they want to go study an institution overseas that might cost more than what they have locally. It's like, yeah, man, maybe you don't graduate the same year as other people in high school, uh, you know, when they finish the university degree, but you'll have achieved what you wanted to achieve, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, maybe that looks like two years of working for you in your situation, you know, but it's still possible. It's not impossible. Yeah. Powerful. So how can listeners learn more about you and or get in touch with you? Well, my website probably has everything there, which is just toshyclinchmusic.com. The Big Band Through the Ages stuff was just shut down that website because we're moving everything to Mm jazzmelbourne.org. And that's still in its very early stages. So they're more than welcome to go there and look at it. Uh, And there's stuff there, but it's not really accurately depicting what next year is going to hold. And that will be updated as things happen in the next coming months, there's just a lot of business side stuff, but uh, they're the two places, you know, of course, you know, Facebook, whatever. I don't really use Instagram, uh, but uh, you know, that's sort of thing. If they want to email me again, the website has everything. Wonderful. Uh, it, it, 
it's kind of the go-to place, LinkedIn, whatever, you know. Excellent. So I'll put all that in the show notes and everything we talked about. Uh, Toshi, this was really awesome to hear your story and I really appreciate you sharing. Um, so for listeners, if you thought that this was helpful and valuable, feel free to share with another thriving musician and better yet, leave a review on iTunes. And I hope that this was helpful and I hope you'll have a great day. Keep thriving. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of financial and creative freedom? Check out the leading financial blog for musicians at spencerlist.com, where Spencer covers the latest trends and financial strategies. And by signing up for the Thriving Musician newsletter, you can earn exclusive member content and discounts. Get it all at www.spencerlist.com. If you would like to nominate a thriving musician for an interview on the podcast, request Spencer to speak at your school or event, or want to submit questions or comments, please send an email to spencer at spencerlist.com. And keep thriving.